Sure, we have 30 seconds to tell you that drivers who switch to Progressive could save big. But then what? Well, there is a nice piece of stock music playing behind me that a talented composer worked really hard on. So let's enjoy it. Wow, almost overshadows the saving big when you switch to progressive part. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. How about we heat things up tonight? Mm, how so? Get a little fresh, add some steam, sizzle and spice. <laughs> Wait, you're talking about going to Outback again, aren't you? Fire things up at Outback Steakhouse. For a limited time, try our Bloomin' Fried Shrimp or get fresh with our new strawberry salad. Go big with our bone-in ribeye or the filet and grilled shrimp on the barbie. Then cool off with a cucumber crush or peanut koala. Try them all before they're gone. Let's Outback. Have you ever been tenacious about something? You know, like you really had to move towards something, accomplish it, and you were going to do anything, anything, to make sure that you accomplished it. I really respect tenacious people who are consistent and continue to move forward every single day to make things happen. That definitely describes my next guest on The Social Network, Tessie Castillo. Tessie is doing some incredible work in writing and journalism, and her book, Crimson Letters, Voices from Death Row, is an incredible piece of work. And the fact that she wrote that piece of work with four different death row inmates is truly mind-blowing. Today, we talk with Tessie about her book and her co-authors, but also her history with lobbying and what's going on with criminal justice reform in the United States. So this is a really important conversation, one that I hope you guys will really enjoy and take a lot from. Ladies and gentlemen, Tessie Castillo. Back in the network, this time with Tessie Castillo. Tessie, thank you for being on today. Thanks so much. So we had an experience earlier today, I would say, and uh, I'm getting to speak to two of the co-authors of the book, uh, Crimson Letters, uh, Voices from Death Row. And I was extremely impressed with the the gentleman who um, I talked to and who you wrote the book with. Um, it was better than I even thought it was going to be. <laughs> That's great. I'm glad you thought that. And what was what was even better, what was, was part of the process, is after I would finish talking to the guys... And then we were on Zoom, so I would see your face afterwards, and you had like you just lit up afterwards. <laughs> what was that about? Tell me a little bit about that. I love hearing them speak because for so many years, while I was working with them in prison, and when we started the process of writing this book, I knew that I had the most brilliant men on my hands, that, that I had this honor to correspond with men who just had so much wisdom and insight and humility. And I would tell other people about it, like, you got to meet these guys, you got to read their letters. And a lot of people were very dismissive, you know, just thinking, oh, Tessie, you, you are nice to everybody and you think everybody's a good person. <laughs> <laughs> okay. And I, I think sort of dismissive of me. And so when I am able to actually introduce you to my co-authors, so you get that opportunity to speak to them personally. And I can see, because I'm watching you too, and I'm watching your reaction as you're listening to them speak, I can see that you understand me, that you see what I've seen in them all these years. And that's just very validating. It's kind of like an I told you so moment for me. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. Tell, talk to me about the maybe the well. Was, let me back up. So when I was talking to Tessie, before, you know, before we got on with the guys, she was like, "Oh, this is great. You're doing this." She said, "But expect there's going to be some blowback from this." Mm -hmm. And uh, I was fairly aware of that, but it was in in a way hearing that from her made it a little more real. But 
tell me a little bit about your experience with resistance to working with these guys. Sure. Um, so people on death row, as you can imagine, are among the most despised group of people in the in the United States and in the world. Uh, they've been convicted of what are considered the worst of the worst crimes. And there's a large segment of the population who can't ever see past that and will forever judge them by the worst thing they've ever done. So the kind of blowback that I get is, how dare you uplift the voices of these men that's inconsiderate um, to the the crime victims. It's, uh, they just, they can't get over the, the crimes. Um, and so I've gotten a lot of that kind of pushback, but I've also gotten a, a lot more, I would say, positivity since I started doing this of people who have said thank you. And some of those folks are people who have been through the criminal justice system themselves or maybe have a family member who's been through it. And they understand that you just can't judge a person by the worst thing that they've ever done, that each of us is so much more than that. And then sometimes I, I just get thank yous from people who had misperceptions and stereotypes about folks on death row. And when they were able to listen to them, they were so moved and, and surprised by what they heard. And so that experience to them um, was in some cases life-changing. And so they've thanked me for that too. Wow. You know, it was really... Um... There's a lot to get to here. Um, we're going to backtrack a little bit, but just to share something quickly with you is, you know, that was the first time I've ever had a phone call with a prison inmate ever in my life. And I, you know, I, I had a lot of, I don't know if it was like nervousness, but like leading up to this week of these interviews, I was feeling like uneasy, not, not, I mean, I wasn't worried about having the calls, but I was like, man, this is like, this is the, probably the most serious work I've done on my podcast. And maybe I was wondering a little bit about, you know, how people would perceive it, but I wonder for you, what, what has pulled you into getting into this? What was the origin of this for you? So I got involved uh, with death row completely by accident. <laughs> I hmm. think. All the best things in life happen by accident. Totally true. <laughs> I was at a Super Bowl party of all things. Whoa! Super Bowl party, and I don't like—I don't even like football. Um, so <laughs> I was just kind of hanging out near the food. I think just stuffing my face, probably. And someone wandered over, and we struck up a conversation. And it turns out he was a psychologist who worked inside of the prison where my co-authors are housed. And specifically, he worked with men on death row. Uh, and so I thought that was fascinating, of course, and just peppered him with questions about what his job was like and what the men were like, what death row was like. And he let me know that there was a new warden. This was 2013. And for the very first time, that warden was opening up central prison and death row specifically to volunteers who could come in and teach classes to the men. Uh, before that, there was no programming whatsoever on death row. They were not even allowed access to exercise equipment or a library, nothing. Um, and so this was really new and I asked if I could be involved and I ended up applying and was part of one of the first uh, cohorts of folks to come in. So I taught a journaling class. Um, and the experience of just walking into that prison and sitting in a room, I remember a week before the guys walked into the room, sitting there by myself and waiting for all of these men who've all been convicted of murder to walk into a room and just thinking, oh man, was this, <laughs> this, this is a good idea. Right? <laughs> sounded like a great idea when I was a little bit buzzed at the Super Bowl party. Exactly. <laughs> I don't know about this. Um, but then they walked in and it did not take long before I was able to see um, the humanity in them. Uh, and the classes, they, they started off a little shaky. I won't lie. I think the guys weren't really sure about me or why I was there or what I wanted or do I really want to help them. Um, but we were able to build a rapport over time and I 
And because it was a journaling class, they were writing about their lives and they were writing about their sort of deepest thoughts and fears and hopes and dreams. So it was like a crash course in getting to know them really quickly. And I just was so blown away by how much time they had spent reflecting on themselves and on their lives and how much um, accountability they were taking for what they had done in the past or been convicted of and the level of wisdom that they showed and humility and compassion and kindness towards each other. And I just thought, wow, this is not what people think goes on at and death row. This is not the idea of uh, the kind of person who gets sent to death row that a lot of us have in our minds. And so I decided that I wanted other people to know that I couldn't just keep this to myself. And I'm a writer, so I wrote a um, an editorial to the local newspaper. And I talked about my experience, and I talked about the humanity that I had found on death row. And about a week after that um, that article came out, I got a letter from the warden canceling my class and um, banning me from the prison. Um, and I was devastated, of course, because the classes were as valuable to me as they were to the men. So I started writing to them because I wanted to stay in touch. And that turned into years of correspondence with several of them. And after writing, I think for probably about a year, I proposed the idea of putting together a book uh, based on their writings. Because just as in the class, I was just getting this onslaught of inspiring letters from them that were brilliantly written. And I thought, yeah, I have to share this. <laughs> yeah. Prison is going to regret they ever kicked me out because watch what I'm going to do now. <laughs> uh, so we put together a book. Uh, it took about four years and the experience was the most difficult of my life, but also the most rewarding. And I'm so glad that, that we made it and then we published it. What is with the your sense of tenacity? I get this sense you're like this amazing like train of like fury of getting things done. You're like, I will not be denied, you know this thing. Has that always been your thing? Like to step into these type of maybe not this, but other projects where you're like, this needs to be done. I want to do this and yeah. then go full fully hard into it. Yes, yes, that has always been a characteristic of mine, for better or for worse. <laughs> <laughs> You're like, it may backfire sometimes. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, I love that quality. I love tenacity. I love kind of the stick-to-itiveness to that. Mm -hmm. And tell me how the relationship with the co-authors developed over that four years. Like, what did you learn about yourself and what did you learn about them? Mm -hmm. So when we started, um, I was still very nervous, even as much as I admired them and liked them and, and we were developing friendships. I just had, you know, all these things in the back of my mind, like even the orientation when I was becoming a volunteer to go into the prison, they gave us an orientation as volunteers. And the entire orientation was just basically saying, these are con men, don't believe anything they say. Uh, if you see, if you think they're being genuine, they're not being genuine. And these are men who know how to manipulate. And um, so I would always wonder, you know, maybe is that true? And is this all like a lie? And how much should I share with these men? How much should they know about my personal life? Um, but it, it got to the point at, at one point where I received a letter from George, who's one of my co-authors. And in the letter, he he got so vulnerable all of a sudden. We'd been writing for a while, and, and it had been, you know, we talked about writing and current events and, and different things. But suddenly his tone just completely changed, and he said, look, Tessie, i got to be real with you. There are so many people who have come into the prison and come into our lives or, or started pen pal correspondence with me who've talked about how much uh, we've changed them and, and how what they see in us, that they see these amazing qualities and that they want to help us and they want to be our friends. And they 
act like they're moved and inspired, but they always drift away after a while. They go back to their lives and they leave this hole that just can't be full. And every time that happens, a little piece of me dies. And I want to know right now if you're going to do that. And if you are, then please do it now. Just stop writing to me right now. Um, and But if you're going to stick with this, then, then please stick with it and understand the, the consequences of drifting away and what that means for us in here. Um, so I thought about that really hard. <laughs> I wasn't sure what to do or, or how long I could commit to these friendships. You know, can I commit it for as long as their lives or mine? Um, but I decided to do it. Uh, so I wrote back and I said, I'll be your friend. And after that, I, I fully committed and I started being vulnerable myself with them and talking about more personal issues that were going on in my life. And I found that the relationships just became so much richer after that because they they give really good advice, <laughs> honestly. I mean, I repaired friendships that were broken because of advice that I got from some of my co-authors on Death Row and a number of other ways in which they've made my life richer um, and have comforted me when I needed to be comforted. So the it's really a two-way relationship. There's some of my closest friendships at this point, really. Wow, that's unbelievable. That's incredible. And, you know... So, you know, usually when I do these things, I feel very composed and, uh, I felt very composed initially when I was talking with some of the guys earlier, but I felt like a very tremendous emotional, um, experience after it was over. And I, do you feel that regularly? I don't know. For me, it was like very surreal, honestly. Maybe that's just because I'm experiencing it for the first time with those guys, but, um, it was very jarring talking to them in a good way, in a good way. Let me frame that. But I felt it was very emotional mm-hmm. also when, you know, you hear to the part and you guys will hear this with the, with, you know, as it comes up with Chanton, it was kind of breaking me apart when he was talking about nobody should have to meet their granddaughter over the phone in prison, you know? And I thought, man, I'm, I was not ready for that, <laughs> you know, like, how has your experience been emotionally with the guys as, as you've gone cr- got closer to them? This whole journey has been an emotional roller coaster and every kind of emotion. I mean, I feel pride at what they've managed to accomplish and who they've become despite every odd against them. I feel a sense of pride that we were able to make it this far and complete this project. Um, there have been times throughout the project in the last few years where I felt anger. <laughs> we've we've gotten into fights. <laughs> mm-hmm. I say all these nice things about them, but we don't always get along. And especially when the when things were really coming down to the wire with the book, we had quite a few disputes. Um, and then fear is another one that I felt a lot throughout this whole process. I even feel it now. Um, fear of not knowing where this is going to go, you know, <laughs> like I've gotten some blowback about this book from people who don't like the fact that I'm mm-hmm. highlighting the voices from people from death row, but there's so much more that could happen. I'm afraid of the effect that uh, a book like this could have on the, on the victims' families. Yeah. And I don't want to hurt them. Um, I'm afraid of what the prison might do if this book gets big. The the prison hates this book and they have, they tried to keep us from writing it. They banned it from the entire North Carolina prison system after it was published. So my co-authors can't hold their own book in their hands. They can't read their own book. Um, they've, they've shown in many ways they've banned me from the prison, uh, so there's so much they can do to retaliate, not against me, but against my, my co-authors. They can put them in solitary confinement. They can take away privileges. They can hurt them in unimaginable ways. And I'm afraid that that will happen and that the more I promote the book, the more likely that would happen. 
Um, so there's a lot of things to be afraid of. Yeah, I could see that. I could definitely see that. And, and I, you know, I felt that on some sense of like, I was grappling with having, I was always going to go through with the, the interviews and stuff, but how do I reconcile like meeting these gentlemen this way and then really being sensitive to the victims as well? How, how do you separate that? How do you do that? Um, it's difficult. It's probably the issue that has kept me up the most at night throughout this whole process. Um, when I was writing the book, I originally I wanted to reach out to the victims' families and even give them a chance to participate in the book process and maybe write from their perspective what their side of the story was and what they went through. So I reached out to an organization here in North Carolina that's statewide a victims advocacy organization. And I basically proposed the idea to them if, if they could help me reach out to the victim's family and, and give them an opportunity to, to speak or at the very least warn them that this book was coming. Um, but the folks at that agency told me not to do that. Uh, they said that it would be better just to just to leave them alone, that even hearing from me or having to be confronted with these crimes again, which have happened 20, 30 years ago at this point, um, they thought it would be too much for the family. So they told me not to not to reach out to them. So I haven't. Um, and I haven't heard from any of them specifically. I haven't heard from any families related to my co-authors victims, but I have been contacted by victims of other murders who've lost other people to um, to murder. And I've gotten some mixed reactions from those folks, but I've actually had a lot of them say thank you to me. Um, there, I think it's amazing sometimes the capacity that we have to forgive as people. And it's important to me that the story that is always told or almost always told about every time a murder happens, it's always, Oh, this murder happened and this, this horrible monster committed the murder and we need to lock him up forever. He's irredeemable. Let's just lock him up, throw away the key and kill him if we can. And I just need people to see who we're doing that too and, and who they are because I don't think that it benefits anybody to have a, an inaccurate caricature of any human being. Um, we just need to realize the humanity that's, that's within all of us, no matter what we've done in our lives, good or bad. It's always more complicated than that. And so I felt like allowing the monster narrative about people on death row to persist unchallenged, which is almost always the way that it is, it really does a disservice to everyone. And I wanted to be part of challenging that narrative. I, I don't think that that undermines the pain of the victim's family. And, and certainly that's not at all my intention in doing this. I just want to present a more complete picture. Totally makes sense. And I wanted to approach doing these interviews that way is, you know, people, I've had several people ask me like, what are you going to talk about? Like the crimes or something like, no, no, you know, that has had its time mm -hmm. and they've been judged on that through the system and whatever that means for them with that and where they're at. I said, I just, I wanted to take a peek into this book and how this came about and maybe give people an idea, an, an opening to open their mind and their hearts to that the story is often unwritten mm -hmm. in a lot of situations. Mm -hmm. And hey, look, this was produced. This this piece of literature was produced in a very unique situation. Maybe just listen and see what it is. It doesn't mean that I condone anything or you condone anything or what happened with their crimes. That's not an endorsement of anything. It's just like you said, understanding the picture. And I think we never take the time to do that in a lot of things in life. We just go, okay, that happened. Mm -hmm. and we don't peel back the layers. And I think for all of us, we want to be understood. 
But our world today is is strange. And I imagine it must, I can't even imagine how the world we're living on the outside here and what these guys think of that actually and what's going on. Cause this is like crazy, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I w- what have you, do you relay things to them about what's going on out here or do they, you know, watch TV or what, what's the whole situation with them on that? So a lot of times they relay things to me. <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> so they do have a, a TV uh, on death row. And then some of them are really voracious radio listeners as well. Um, so they, a lot of them, they get more news than I do, or they get it before I do because I'm so busy. I don't watch TV or listen to radio. Um, so it, there's a lot of things that they don't know. Obviously they were locked up before internet, before cell phones, before yeah. all these things. But it's, it's impressive how much they do know despite having been gone for that long. Like, I, the, no joke. I've had some of them call me to give me pointers on, like, technology and stuff like that. Like, <laughs> with audio quality for calls or, or different things, they'll say, oh, I have this friend who is really techie and let me connect you. Or I saw this ad on TV about, you know, such and such. Maybe you should check out that program or that software. <laughs> <laughs> Schooling you on this. Yeah. <laughs> Wow, that's amazing. That's really amazing. So tell me about your your background in writing and um, what motivated you to get into it. Mm-hmm. I started writing, I think, this, for the same reason the guys did uh, as a therapy. Um, I started writing a memoir. was the first book I ever wrote, although I never published it. Uh, and it was just trying to process things that had happened to me in the past. Um as an adult, I've always gravitated towards work that involved working with populations that are not only very vulnerable and marginalized, but that also that are hated. Uh, so I've done a lot of work with folks who struggle with drug addiction or who sell drugs, um, people involved in sex work, undocumented immigrants, people in prison. And I do those kind of work because I just have had so many experiences where I've gone into interactions with, with people like that, who's been through those struggles and you just hear everything that you grew up learning. These are weak people, immoral people, bad people, dangerous people. And I've always walked away from those encounters thinking the exact opposite. (laughs) Um, And just being able to connect with them because I feel like people who've suffered a lot in their lives and who have struggled and who have been able to find meaning and purpose and identity in that struggle and that suffering, they grow in and they grow more so, I think, than people who've never been through that struggle. And so when I spend time around people who've suffered a lot and who've been able to overcome it or, or turn it in a positive direction. It's like, uh, it's hard to describe it. It almost feels to me like, like they're more human (laughs) than humans who haven't been through that. And I am drawn to that and I admire it and I want to be around it. And that's why I seek out people like that. And in a way, going to death row was was sort of a culmination because I'd been working with all these other marginalized groups for a long time. And then suddenly I had an opportunity to work with a group of folks who, who's really uh, at the bottom of the, the social ladder, um, people convicted of murder. And I felt that I would probably see in them the same things that I saw in everyone else, which is that there's so much more to them than we think. And they have so much more value than the value that society places on them. And I I feel like I was right. (laughs) Man, uh, two things. One, after um, our previous conversation with the guys earlier, I ran into my living room and my wife was there. And I said, I got to tell you about these calls I had about for the podcast. And I said a very similar thing that you said. I said, you know, if you spent, let's say in this case, one of the guys 16 years 
idling with your mind and having all these thoughts, you've had nothing but time to reflect upon your life. And in many ways, you are doing something, you're doing more work than most humans are doing because people are obsessed with spending their time being busy and feeling their time not being reflective of their existence mm -hmm. for that. So in many, I said almost the exact same as I said, in many ways, it makes, they're actually do more of the work of being human than other people in mm -hmm. a weird way yeah. for that. It's very strange to think about it that way. But how has this altered your reality in working with marginalized populations and seeing a different outcome than, or different truth than what was told to you? How has that affected your daily living, your reality? I think it makes me question narratives that I'm that were given in the media or given by other people. Um, I always question them now. I always think there's more to the story, particularly when I see a group of people being really vilified, because uh, I know now that that's never <laughs> that's never true. Um, so I think it's maybe a little bit more more cautious, less likely to just swallow talking points that I hear. Um, I think it's made me more open to what life has to offer because I'm willing to see the humanity and, and other people and willing to make those connections. I don't immediately close people off because they belong to a certain group or because they're different from me. So my life is much richer and more diverse for that, I think, as well. Um, and of course, doing this book has, has taken my life in the direction that I never thought I would be. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, every way, you know, change the way I spend my time, the way I make money, the way I, um, so many things. <laughs> so grateful for it. Wow. That's incredible. Is there, um, is this book kind of become the central theme of your, your writing career, or is it just another step for something else? You feel like even a bigger project or something that you seem very tenacious. So I'm like, okay, what is Tessie doing next? You know, I have no idea what I'm doing. Next. I, I have no plan uh, for next steps. I, I think George said this to you and when, when he talked to you, we're just sort of taking it one day at a time. And that's very true. I have no idea where this book is going to go. Uh, there were so many moments along the process of writing it where I where I almost gave up um, and didn't think that it would ever amount to anything. And and now to see the kind of um, reaction, the positive reaction that we've been getting and interest in the book is still a little bit new and shocking to me. Um, so I'm just kind of going with it <laughs> yeah yeah see what happens i don't know i i think it would be foolish of me to try to make plans at this point because there's a lot of this that seems very out of my control mm. yeah i can see that now in the promotion of the book i know you had mentioned about some things being fearful of but how much effort are you moving are you giving to promoting it and getting it out there and, and having the guys speak and things of that nature all my effort. I'm doing this full time right now. Uh, so we wow. pitching the, uh, yeah. It's <laughs> big wow. <life>. You're in <laughs> deep. <laughs> yeah. I, um, I started at the beginning in January, I started promoting the book and I, um, I, I'm living off of my savings right now so I can do this. Uh, and we're, just promoting everywhere on podcasts. We are trying to speak at universities and colleges because we feel like students is a, a group that really needs to hear this, especially students connected to law or criminal justice or social work uh, who will be involved in the criminal justice system at some point. Um, we have a book club, which I love. The book club is the highlight of my week. It's a free book club. And anyone can join on my website, tessicastillo.com. And we do, we meet once a week for five weeks. And at each week, one of the co-authors will call in and talk to the book club members. So wow. if you read that section by that co-author, because the book is divided by, by section, um, then that co-author will call in. And so it gives people the opportunity to have those really deep, rich, meaningful conversations directly with the co-author right after they read that person's section. 
And every time we do that, we, we just like, most of the people leave in tears. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's just a really, a really incredible experience for the co-authors who've gone decades in prison with no one listening to them, no one caring about them. And, and all they ever see in the news is we want these people executed and for them to be able to call into a meeting and be validated like that and be heard like that and move people like that is so meaningful for them and meaningful for the people participating. So I'm just trying to spread these experiences, speaking at churches. Um, anyone who wants me and my co-authors to come in and speak is welcome to reach out to me because we're, we're definitely looking for, um, for as many opportunities as, as we can get. I really want people to see what I see in these men. Incredible. Now, do you have, are most people receptive to having the conversations or are there people who are pretty hesitant to do these things? Well, if they're hesitant, then they probably don't reply to my emails. <laughs> <laughs> the ones that reply have been very receptive, yes. <laughs> Yeah, I think I I think I saw you on maybe it was Spot a guest this site potentially. Yeah, and it, it shut down. And but man, I got in just the right window because as soon as I saw that pop up, I think it was your little introduction that everybody gets and stuff. I was like, oh, I must I must reach out. Yeah. I have to reach out. I'm very glad I did. It's um, I I tend to be a person who seeks out. Maybe like yourself, maybe, I don't know if, if I purposely seek out marginalized populations and stuff, but I definitely seek out things that I don't understand. Mm-hmm. And, and I, I'm, I just think that the story is incomplete in many things in life. Mm-hmm. And I just want to know. And my podcast is a big part of that. It help, it's education for me. It is art. It's creativity. It's expression. It gives me a deeper understanding of the life that we're all living mm-hmm. together. So I wanted to know, I'm like, death row, I don't know anything about that. What's it like there? Maybe I have some preconceived notions. And clearly they were very wrong <laughs> what I was thinking about it. And that also makes me question, what else, What? how is the narrative written? Is it always written to be in favor of the writer or the situation? Or what's what other powers are going on behind the scenes to influence that writing, you know? So many powers. I used to be a lobbyist before. What? Yeah. <laughs> whoa, whoa, whoa. Back that up now. A lobbyist. Yep. <laughs> you have to talk about it. No. Um, I was a lobbyist for how many years? Almost 10 years. Um, I worked Long for- Long time. Yeah. I was a drug policy lobbyist. Um, so I tried to influence drug policy here in North Carolina. It was a state level lobbyist and I worked for a nonprofit that was trying to change drug policy to make it so that we weren't locking up so many people for low level drug crimes to try to make it so that people who were at risk for overdosing had access to medication that could reverse an overdose. So we did a lot of important work on that, but I learned how the sausage was made, boy, let me tell you. Mm. <laughs> like, ooh. Uh, so can that you give also, some details or I mean, I don't want you to say things you can't, but you know, I mean, I can say whatever I want. I'm not a lobbyist anymore. Okay. Well, let's, let's spill some tea then here. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it, it's hard to even know where to start. <laughs> uh, I will say one thing about, uh, there's a few things I would say that I, that I really learned about lobbying. Um, and one is that I went into lobbying thinking that legislators were these sort of intimidating, powerful, very knowledgeable people, and that it was sort of scary to talk to them. And and how could I, this mere citizen, ever hope to influence legislation or even be involved in that process at all? And one thing I learned is that legislators are also just normal people. They're nurses and dentists and retirees and lawyers uh, who happen to run for a seat and they don't know very much about anything (laughs) (laughs) 
other than the field, I mean, you can imagine, you know, being a nurse and, and then going to the legislature, you know, some things about nursing, but you don't know about forestry or the criminal justice system or the educational system or the driving laws. And yet they're expected to vote on literally thousands of bills every year that cover all of those topics. They're not experts at all. And it's a very intimidating process for them. And they don't, and they're so busy at the legislature, it's set up so that no one has any time to stop and think. It's just go, 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 go. And so they have these bills that cross their desk that they have not read. They have no idea what the bill is about, and they have to vote on them. And they have to vote on dozens of these bills a day that they haven't read. And it's a really terrible, it's a sloppy process. The way that bills are written is sloppy, and there's lots of mistakes made and lots of things that are not taken into consideration. Um, and, And then they become law. And it's it's horrible how that happens. But one thing that I did learn, like the one piece of silver lining, is that because legislators know so little about so many of the topics, you as a citizen can actually teach them a lot. So anyone can go into the legislature and speak to a legislator. There's there's no rules against that. You could just walk in and talk to any of them. And if you get some time to sit down in front of them and talk to them about a particular issue that you are an expert on, they are so grateful for that because now finally they feel like they know at least a little bit <laughs> about oh my gosh <laughs> that they didn't know before. And so you, you actually have a lot more influence than you think you do. Okay. You know more this- than they do. About this is both encouraging and discouraging at the same time. It is. (laughs) The other thing is that anyone can introduce a bill. So you can, again, you can walk into a legislature and say, hey, I, you know, this is an issue that's important to me. I think we should have a law on such and such a thing. And if the legislator agrees with you, they send your idea to an office called bill drafting and they turn it into legal language. And that becomes a bill that then moves through the legislature. And you can be called on, as I was many times, to come to committee meetings and to speak in front of the legislators on the bill. So you can be as just a normal citizen with no law background and no idea how this process works. You can just go in and say, I have an idea and this is what I want. And they can make (laughs) it happen. It's ridiculous. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I had a feeling about this though, because it's so funny. I was telling a buddy of mine the other day, I was like, why do we, why do we like look up to these people who are like in, like in all these legislative branches, like they know all this stuff. Like it's kind of the same thing I have with like celebrities and, yeah. you know, uh, athletes. I'm like, you know, they really don't know that much. Right. I mean, a dude knows how to put a ball through a hoop pretty much. <laughs> like that doesn't mean that they know anything about other things. Yeah. I'm just saying, I'm not, I'm not saying that they're not, they don't know things, but they, I don't think they, the, the adulation of everything they say is, is, is not worthy of that. And like, you don't know that they know anything else except how to do the particular job they're supposed to do. And then it sounds like in this case, they may not know anything about the job they're supposed to do actually. <laughs> it's just, it's crazy. And especially when it comes to criminal justice topics, because one thing I learned that was really discouraging about criminal justice stuff in in particular. Um, so anytime a, an issue comes up in the legislature that is attached to money. So let's say, for example, we have a drug overdose crisis going on in this country and we should be investing more uh, funding into trying to prevent these kind of crises and uh, helping folks get treatment if they're already struggling with addiction. But if you try to introduce a bill like that into the legislature, you just create this giant infighting because that money, whatever money you're proposing for treatment uh, or for new programs, has to come from somewhere else. And so there's suddenly this fighting over the budget. And that's why it's so difficult sometimes to introduce what should seem like a very obvious uh, solution that would benefit from the community 
Um, if it's got money attached to it, then it's a it's a problem and it becomes a problem. And legislators often shy away from those kinds of, of problems. But if you introduce a bill that says we're going to create a new crime or we're going to increase penalties for an existing crime, even though technically you are increasing the budget because arresting more people means spending more money in the criminal justice system, you don't have to put any money on that bill if it's just a let's increase a crime or let's make a new crime sort of a bill. And so that's why so many of the bills and and the quote-unquote solutions that are introduced into the legislature involve creating a new crime or or a harsher crime because it allows the legislators to, one, look like they're doing something about an issue. Uh, Let's use drugs as an example. Just increasing penalties makes it look like they're being tough on drugs and they're doing something about it. And two, it allows them to avoid that whole money issue that would come up if they were, say, trying a drug prevention program or a drug treatment program um, to deal with the same issue. So that's something that um, explains why we rely so heavily on criminal justice and, and why we create so many new crimes all the time. You're blowing my mind with all this stuff right now. It's like it's, I'm getting downloaded. I'm like I'm like in the Matrix, and when they stick that plug in the back of the the neck, and it's like I know kung fu now. It's like <laughs> it like instantly downloaded me with all this stuff, uh, and clearly it feels like there is some movement. I'm again I I don't really know, but I hear more a movement of criminal justice reform. I hear this a lot. What can actually be done that will make a significant difference? That's a big question, I know. But what do you, in your opinion, you know? Oh, man, <laughs> that is a big question. I know. I, I think, yes, there are a lot of attempts at reform that have been coming up, and especially now with all the things connected to, to racial justice. I think that this is going to take so much more than a few fixes here and there or a few new programs or diversion of funding. We have to fundamentally change the way we look at the criminal justice system. We have to scrap it and start over. Um, And I think we should be emphasizing positive outcomes for everyone over hey, let's just punish this one person. Uh, There are some programs now that are restorative justice programs that are really incredible because they allow the person who was convicted of a crime and the victim of the crime to meet face-to-face and to discuss what happened and to come up with um, an appropriate system, an appropriate penalty that actually benefits the victim. Because right now, people, they just get sort of locked up. <laughs> they get yeah. locked up in a place that, that tortures them physically and emotionally. And it's in the book. The book describes actual instruments of torture that they use in prison to subdue people for infractions as simple as making too much noise. And this is what's going on in our prisons that, that we actually torture people with instruments and we psychologically torture them by stripping them of their worth like Chantan was talking about and yeah. throwing them in solitary confinement the guy Aleem my co-author who you're going to talk to on Thursday was in solitary confinement for 10 years whoa i mean just imagine what that can do to a person so we put people in this place that that just takes away everything that makes them human and, and makes them feel worthless and undervalued. And, and then we let them out, most of them. And we're like, go back into society and see what you can do. And they go back and, and they're denied employment because they have a criminal record and they're denied housing and they're denied scholarships and they're treated, they're denied voting rights in a lot of places. And, and we just sort of, ex- I, I don't know what we're, we expect to happen. You know, they're not better than they were. <laughs> yeah. And so I would like a criminal justice system that emphasizes, okay, so this harm happened, but how do we help this person grow from that and become better and actually rehabilitate 
and make amends directly to the victim for the harm that was caused. I think that would be such a such a better system. It, it can be really meaningful in restorative justice if you've got the victim and the perpetrator face to face and the victim can explain how they <coughs> hurt. Right. What happened? Because sometimes people are their folks are going out there robbing people and they're not even thinking about the consequences. They're like, "Oh, that person has a lot of money. It doesn't matter if I take something from them." And they don't really realize how much deeper the crime can go. Um, and, and of course, on the other end, you've got victims who might only feel the hurt that they feel and they don't realize why the crime happened or, or what the person was going through at the time they committed the crime. So it's really, it's about getting that big picture, like we were talking about earlier, and allowing both of them to sort of see what really happened in full and to work at making amends for that in a way that's meaningful and beneficial to everyone. I, I love that that stance. I, I just wonder, how does that happen with, you know, things like privatization of prisons, like prisons for profit and things of that nature? And, you know, with our very messy uh, political parties and um, partisan politics, how does that happen? Like, I look at this stuff and I go, we, we can't make any decisions in our government like that. Like, can't do anything, I swear. And like, how do we do something that big, you know? I think the key is not to trying to do something that big. It's trying to do something small within your own sphere of influence. Mm. We have restorative justice programs and, and other really great programs, small scale. Uh, but I'm actually part of one here in uh, Durham where I live. But we can spread those because everything starts out small. And then it spreads and it just catches. Um, so I think if all of us are in our different communities are making those little efforts within our own neighborhoods and our own communities, and if enough of us do it, it will become the, the larger narrative. That's a good point. <clears throat> it makes a lot of sense. Actually, you know, one of the things since all of the racial unrest and protests and things have been going on, I've had so many conversations. Being a black man, I'm inundated with constant conversation about <clears throat> all of this. And I decided for myself, much like uh, you were just saying, I'm going to try to make a difference on my local level here in the town that I live and get a part of the um, diversity and equity board for the school district and try to create some programming for age-appropriate programming for kids, you know, K through 12, to understand the mechanisms behind what's going on and have better training. So, I mean, yeah, looking at it from that sense, it, it does make more uh, sense that way. I think just getting started though, I think is always hard for people. And so what are the particular things that you're working on or do you know other people are working on that they can do in their local community to help be a part of the change? Well, the great thing about local communities is that they're all different. Um, so it's, it's hard for me to say, speaking to a national audience, <laughs> what you can do yeah. in the community because I don't know the programs. Um, but almost every community has a uh, different organizations. Like here we have our restorative justice group. Um, we have some reconciliation commissions that are trying to work with um, police to resolve, to figure out what to, what to do with our policing system and, and how to make it um, more equitable and, and to break down some of the systematic racism that exists within the police department. Getting involved in local elections is extremely important. Mm. A lot of people don't realize how powerful local elections are, particularly in influencing your um, criminal justice system. So, for example, the district attorney, which is a county office, district attorneys are the head prosecutors in a county, and they're in charge of setting the entire culture uh, of the criminal justice system locally. So they can decide whether or not to pursue the death penalty for a particular case or whether or not to pursue the death penalty. They can decide whether they're going to just go hard, harshest possible punishment, catch as many people as they can, or they can decide 
whether they're going to divert folks uh, into non-criminal justice resolutions to problems. And because the elections are so small, the same thing is with the legislature, you actually have a lot more influence than you think. And the national election is huge and there's millions of people voting. So, so your vote is just a drop in the bucket But for a local election. You and, and your group of folks who get involved actually make an enormous difference and, and, and can shape the whole culture of um, how criminal justice issues are handled. So district attorneys are very powerful and you should pay attention to them. And so are judges. Wow. Yeah. You know, it's, I just, in Washington state, you know, it's always, there's been this whole thing about mail-in ballots and stuff like that, but Washington's been doing that for a long time. And, uh, and so I have made it my mission over the last, I'd probably say six years or so. Like I really pay attention to local elections. I spend the time to look at all the candidates. And I remember telling my wife, this last one we just put in, I was like, feels like, like anybody can get in on this. Like you read some of the people, you're like, yeah. how did this person get on this? Seriously. Yeah. And and then you start, and then when you're telling me, I'm like, this is making a lot of sense how this could happen, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Anybody can run for office. And it's a, there are some people yeah, who are really dumb at the legislature. <laughs> some very people too, but there's some you walk in there and you're like, what? <laughs> how did this happen? <laughs> like. <laughs> It's incredible. Like you're really, that's what I love about this stuff is, is getting downloaded with a tremendous amount of information and, and, and creating another narrative, a pathway for doing <clears throat> different things. I met with the uh, police chief of our town about three weeks ago and he's a black man like myself. We had this great conversation. He goes, Darian, you should honestly think about local elections, politics. Mm-hmm. If you know, if you want to help us and do things, he said, it actually makes a big difference. And I was like, ah, and then I'm hearing you say it. I'm like, what is going on in my life? What is this? Am I being led to this? I mean, like crazy stuff, you know, it's just incredible. Your, your story fascinates me. And, and, and again, the word tenacity of that, I, I'm curious, like, I know you said you're taking it day by day, but I mean, you seem, I saw, saw what you look like on camera. You seem like a pretty young person. Like, mm-hmm. I'm curious, I can't help but think, where is this headed for you? Like, if you're, you're giving all this time right now to the book and everything, but I'm also very curious just what your life's going to be like with this tenacity and that there may be something else bigger or another project that you're going to like have a massive appeal with i don't know like it just if you're built like that something will happen <laughs> you know like thank you I, I don't know either at this point i yeah i really don't you might not want to go to any more super bowl parties you know i mean like i don't <laughs> I know to avoid them like i said i don't like football <laughs> <laughs> you're just you don't care if no sports are on probably right now you're like yeah <laughs> uh, i'm good you know but i am uh i'm grateful to have met you and you're now in the network, so <clears throat> you're going to be hearing from me again outside of just, you know, when the podcast is coming out. I love to check back in with all of my guests, and that goes for the same for all the guys as well, your co-authors. I I, um, I liked every couple months or so, I'd like to check in with everybody. So you're my gateway to them. Sure. <laughs> um, and I like creating long-term relationships. It's been a huge part of my life and my professional life, all of my training clients, I've had them for, you know, over a decade, most of them. Mm-hmm. I thrive on long-term commitments and relationships with people. So you are now a part of that. So another person, sorry. <laughs> feel so honored. <laughs> eh, you know, it's just, I love people and I love the stories of people and your story. I would love to learn more about your story. I think there's more there for with you as well. So I'd love to continue that another time. Yeah, I would love that too. Well, thank you so much, Tessie, for your time. <clears throat> and uh, we will be connecting here again pretty soon. Yeah. All right. Thank you so much for having me on. You got it. Thanks. So let me ask you something. How do you get your news? Because I know you want to stay informed with what's going on here in the world. There's so much going on on a regular basis. And it's something that's been a problem for me personally. 
And I've been searching and searching and searching, and finally, I found a news source that I think all of my listeners are going to love. It's called The Donut, or The Dose of News Useful Today. The founder and CEO, Peter Nowak, is a good friend of mine, and when he turned me on to it, I was just blown away. Finally, a daily news source that delivers succinct and factual news about all the world's occurrences, and it's an easy access to finding things that you just want to get information about. And it also serves up a lot of positive news stories that you won't hear anywhere else. It's your daily reminder that there is good in the world, even if it doesn't feel like it sometimes. So, get the donut. Stay informed. It's 100% free. You can unsubscribe anytime. Visit thedonut.co or text DONUT to 66866 to sign up today. Thank you for listening to this episode of Dr. D's Social Network. Make sure you listen to future episodes. Also, please make sure to rate and review My Dad's Show on Apple Podcasts in the Rate and Review section. Thanks, everyone. So you want to invest in companies that can do as much for the world as your portfolio. But how do you find them? At Fidelity, we research, we dig, we turn over rocks, and we seek out companies that are successful, not in spite of their commitment to sustainability, but because of it. Want to get clarity on your sustainable investing? Fidelity can help bring it all into focus. Visit fidelity.com slash sustainable to learn more. Investing involves risk, including risk of loss. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC, member NYSE SIPC. Next time someone needs to send you money, tell them to use Zelle. With Zelle, the money goes straight into your bank account, and it typically only takes minutes between enrolled users. And even if the sender uses a different U.S. bank, it still works. Plus, Zelle is already in over 1,600 banking apps, so you probably won't have to download another one. By the way, make sure the sender has your correct U.S. mobile number or email address so the money goes to the right place. Look for Zelle in your banking app today.